scripture reading today is Romans 8, 18 to 39. Now hear the word of the Lord. I consider that our present, present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought forth into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen it? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. When I get to attend university classes or when I was working on both uh, bachelor's and, and postgraduate studies, uh, sometimes I would go to a, a lecture and it often happened that when you're the most tired, you realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff in this and i got to kind of sit maybe at the, at the edge of my seat. And uh, there were times, and, and back, back then, that's now and not that long ago, but... Uh, sometimes the best lecturers wouldn't have slides and everything. They would just talk, and I would write notes like crazy. And sometimes it felt like a bit of a workout, but at the end I would think the richness of what is here. I'm not saying that this morning that, that I have some amazing things in my mind. If I do, they come from the Scripture. But we're going to go pretty quick here. And if you, need, if you say, well, that's tired, and I'm tired, and it's Mother's Day and whatever, I'm going to invite you to kind of stretch out a little bit and get ready because uh, we're going to move through this. And one of the reasons we're doing so is the material demands it. Uh, So, off we go. We've come to the end of the first half of the book of Romans. The topic of Romans is the Christian gospel. Much of what is presented even today in religious circles, Christian circles even, I, I don't mind saying it, much of what is presented is not gospel. Rather, churches major often on how to be better or the taking up of a cause or sermons that are centered around self rather than God. Being better is good and helping others is better still, but the gospel is above all human conviction. It is not an argument among arguments. It is not a truth among truths. If the gospel is a truth among truths, then it will battle those truths, meaning that perhaps it will win, but perhaps it will lose. And some in our culture think that the gospel has lost. The gospel is the good news of God, that God has turned towards humanity, and that God has not willed to be God without us. The gospel of God has to do first, foremost, you could say entirely, with Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see who God is, the mystery of eternity and infinity revealed in Jesus Christ, God's character, God's relationship to humanity. In Jesus Christ, God turns towards us, and in Jesus, humanity turns toward God. And so the call of the minister is, put your faith in Jesus Christ. I I don't remember the quote right now, but I have in my mind at least kind of the feel of it. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian, said uh, the only way to really know God and study and to, le- and to grow and study is to love more and more because God is a God of love. This is a life then not after self or a religious life. Living for yourself or living for religion, Romans reminds us, will get you nowhere. Both are killer. Living for self and living for religion major in one thing. 
They make dead things. They make things to be dead. Self-focus kills and religion kills. But God brings life. Everywhere, all the time, God brings life. Instead of death, God has revealed a righteousness. Look at Romans 3, 21. Instead of wrath, God has revealed a righteousness in Jesus Christ. The ultimate sign that God is for us is the resurrection. In dying on a cross, Jesus completely and fully identifies with humanity, even becoming sin. But God does not leave Jesus in the grave. Jesus is raised from the dead and lives. And we have a living faith. And we live in the light of the resurrection and we are changed. We are, as scripture says, made new. We are each of us a new creation as we put our faith in him. We live then in the light of the Holy Spirit. And here is a powerful truth. We live in the light of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we are told, is with us and in us. We live a life not of defeat, and we have a faith that is not wearisome, though we may grow tired. We live in the midst of the realities of this world, but we live a life of light. We are, through Jesus Christ, brought into relationship with God. God has turned towards us in Christ Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit, as has been read for us, intercede for us. That means that before you even pray, before you even groan, your life and your concerns and your heart are brought before God. And the life comes not from you and your success and your achievement, financial, moral, spiritual, supernatural, Your life comes not from your own effort, because the gospel exists apart from you and before you. It exists before now and well past now. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God is forever. When we know the gospel, when we are awakened to conversion, I was at a reading group at UBC the other night and we were talking about this this line. Some people say, well, I'm I'm not trying to convert you. And somebody else in our group said, why not? Everything in the world is trying to convert me to this cell phone or this, you know, product. Uh, the, the idea can be that we've been heavy-handed or we've been mean or we've been judgmental. But make no mistake about it, we, are, we want to see conversion awakened to the life that is in the Holy Spirit. And then we see and we live from it and in it and by it. But this love and this life is for all. And this is another thing that churches have often not uh, been very good on. This is for all. It is not at the exclusion of others. This is the way in turning towards humanity that God loves all people, no exceptions. So what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Simply this. The Christian, by this conversion, sees this. Responds to it accepts it, lives from it, and by it, and so experiences the life of the Holy Spirit. We reach the conclusion today, and as I said, I'm going to go quickly, not simply for time's sake, but because I want you to get the energy of the text. You can mull it over later, unpack each verse and each thing, because it is so rich and so deep. 
But when you read Romans 8, 18 or 13 to 39, you have to kind of take it in this big chunk. It's like an excited child who's so, you know, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and you're caught up in the delight. And you're overwhelmed. The first half of the book of Romans ends with God's glory and our participation in it. But it does nothing to be blind to the realities of this world and the pain of our lives. It won't deny that sorrow or even the darkness in the real world. This is one of the things that is most remarkable about the passage. What are the challenges in this world to faith in God? That we can't see God? That we can't describe God or prove God's existence? You understand, don't you? If you could prove God's existence, then that which you have proven would no longer be God. It would be your creation. That's a philosophical way of thinking. On a day-to-day level, perhaps, the challenge to faith in God is simply suffering. In this world and in our lives, we say, look at the world. Look at all the pain and unexplained tragedy and sorrow. What I want to do today is take you to a higher place, a higher plane, that will do nothing to deny the suffering, but will end with God's glory. Isn't that wonderful? Have you heard of the Canadian poet Shane Coison? He's a really, really big guy, like a huge, like just an enormous young man. And he would have been, he's the kind of guy that in high school or elementary, it must have been tough for him. He says that he struggled with weight his whole life. But he read a poem at the Olympics here in 2010, and he became quite a famous Canadian poet. And he makes his living now, this is real. He makes his living traveling around and reading poetry and writing books, and his shows are sold out. And many young people going to these shows. I heard him on CBC a couple weeks ago on on the show Q, and uh, he read one of his poems. I think it's called For Many. I didn't write it down. But he was explaining what the poem was, and I want to use this to show you that we need to kind of bust out of the limits of our thinking to get this text. Poison says, when I was younger, I was asked that question that you sometimes get asked. If you could change any part of your body, what would it be? He says, obviously I didn't understand the question because I answered improperly, I suppose. If you could change one thing about your body, he was asked, what would it be? And he replied quickly as a young person, oh, that's easy. I would have tentacles for arms. You get it? And somebody said to him, no, I mean your weight. And the poem, he just wrote a poem that's recent. You can look it up for many. And he says things like, I would have tentacles for arms so that I could climb tall buildings and give inescapable hugs. Or he says, if I could change one thing about my body, what would it be? I would take your eyes and put them in where my eyes are so that I could see the world as you see it. See what he's done and see the magic of the poetry? He's taken us from the the limits of our understanding to something so much higher. You have to have that imagination for this text to speak to you. Because the life that will be described is a life beyond limits. A life in the spirit that we are given by God. It will end with powerful and beautiful words of faith and comfort. Bringing suffering and glory together. It's a look at a realistic life to the point where if we listen, we are led to consider, and I would again want to say to each one of you, 
to consider that my life, your life, our lives, even in this life, could have to do with the eternal glory of the God of all love. The terrible thing, the sad thing, is that even in a church, many don't see this or believe this. Your life, including your struggles, sometimes particularly those, could have to do with the glory of the eternal God of all love. So are you ready? This is just the preamble. In verses 13 to 17, which we didn't even read, we are moved from life in the flesh to life in the spirit. And then life in the spirit is described. What the spirit does, what difference the spirit makes in this life. Firstly, the spirit leads us into holiness. See how much better that is than somebody saying, what's wrong, you've done a bad thing. And checking your life and judging you and all that. The Spirit leads us into a life of holiness. When the Spirit is present in your life, you actually want to do things guided by God, not guided by self. Our world is fixated on self. You want to do things guided by goodness instead of appetite or comfort, though at times you will battle those. Secondly, the Spirit replaces fear with freedom. In the text, it's going to remind us that we are adopted, which is a much bigger word than adoption in our culture. It means that... If you, if you used to have to look to a, an authority figure, in this case God, kind of cowering because you don't have a relationship of love, now you have been brought into the family and you have all the full rights and privileges of a family member. You don't have to do any cowering anymore. Fear has been replaced with freedom. Thirdly, the Spirit prompts us to call God Father. Now there's a difference for the Christian and the non-Christian, right? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray each day and over and over again each day. God is not cold and distance, not an idea or a concept. Without the Holy Spirit, God remains a concept or an idea, something or someone to be proven or disproven. But with the Holy Spirit, we know God in relationship. Dear Heavenly Father. Finally, the Spirit is about the first fruits, is the first fruits of the fullness of salvation. In other words, there is no harvest yet. But that one piece of fruit has arrived. And those of you who are gardeners or those of you who have seen apple trees or plum trees, some people fight plum trees because they never stop. And that one piece, and you know what's coming, a whole harvest, a whole crop. We are told the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the fullness of salvation, that what we experience now is just a glimpse. But one day, I can't describe it to you. That's the preamble. Meanwhile, we live in this world of suffering and pain, and we participate in this world. And in this world, there is suffering and there is glory. Glory often to do with what is coming. Suffering and glory in verses 18 to 27, one more step up. I I picture this text almost as uh, one of the commentators. Some of what I'm getting here, particularly the list of five things we get to, Uh, from John Stott. And Stott says this text is like a staircase where you go up and up and up. But as I was studying it and praying it and feeling it in my faith, it's different than a staircase where you have to kind of make that step. It's more like, I've I've seen video games like this on, on people's phones that they can play. It's more like you're shot up from one thing to the other with nothing in between. And so, boom, I'm on this next level. And then this next one. And then this next one. 
And verses 18 to 27, after this assurance of the Spirit, give us another step. And they have to do with suffering and glory. Suffering and glory are together in this text. You can't separate them. And what's been said is you can't separate them in the world. Often we want the glory without the suffering, but they are together. You want to ignore one or you want to explain one away. But suffering and glory are together here and in our lives. They are, however, different and cannot, this is important, cannot be compared. So what Paul does, the writer of this text, is he looks to the world around him and then he does this amazing thing. He takes the fields and the trees and everything around him. North Vancouver would be a good place for this. And he says, look around at all creation. Creation itself is groaning for redemption and reconciliation. For us, a picture can be drawn of thistles and thorns and toil. The natural world itself somehow imprisoned because of the fallen state of this world. But the text reminds us that even the creation will be liberated and instead of groaning, there will be praise, singing, chorus. All the trees of the field will what? Clap their hands. And the mountains and the hills will break forth in singing. And some of you, by God's grace, have heard them do just that already. Just a glimpse. And then we are told, it's in the text with the words, not only so, not only is the creation groaning, but people are too. We are in the burdens of pain. Sometimes just the sheer monotony of this life. I know that many of you have experienced this. Even when things are going pretty well and you wake up another morning and before your feet hit that floor, you go, again. Or the pain, the sorrow. We are groaning, our bodies and our lives, our aging, our sickness, our frailty and our loss. I know that you know this. The absences in your life, things you have missed that you thought you would have, sorrow. You have felt this, waiting and longing and hoping. And then we are told we groan and we wait patiently, which means we're not resigned or lazy. We don't say, oh, well, there's nothing for me to do in this life. But patiently implies something else, and this is a helpful corrective to many people, myself and some others here, I would imagine. Patience also means you will not know the fullness of all the salvation God has for you in this life. You might get glimpses. And some of you have an anemic faith, one that doesn't have enough uh, wholeness and strength and power. But, But we also need the reminder that there is a one day connected with this and it is not for us to judge others saying what's wrong with them what's wrong with them so you ready for the next step in this groaning the spirit we are told intercedes for us later we're told that jesus himself intercedes for us and interprets our groaning to god as if you don't even know what to ask you you don't know how to express it you feel the ache of self and the world What is wrong? Somebody says to you, what's wrong? And you either say the great answer, which is nothing, which means a lot, but I don't know. What's wrong? And you can't voice it. You know what the Bible tells us? Is that what the Spirit does is take your inability to voice it, and and then the Spirit himself takes up no words, groanings, but takes those groanings that are yours to God and interprets them for you. That's a promise. So what do you want out of life? Do you want to tell me? Do you want to tell God? Of course, in the deepest places, you can't even give it words. 
And the Holy Spirit interprets that groaning. I close my eyes in the consideration of the pain in the world. Last week I was praying in church here, and I thought about this. Uh, This is an example of it. I was riding my bike. I went for a bike ride. And then when I came home and I was, was, um, you could feel so good after you exercise like that. And I was done, and then I was thinking of the situation in Nepal, and I thought, Heavenly Father, while I was riding, and I closed my eyes and thought this, prayed this, while I was riding, experiencing freedom and joy and blessing and beauty of this place, someone in Nepal was breathing their last breath under. I can't, now I can't give it words. Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. You see how this is not just a staircase being built. There's, it's up and up and up. And we get next to five. Oh, I've got to go back for this. Uh-oh. We get next to five unshakable convictions. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Please don't make this verse small by making this about us and them. That this means God works good for you and bad for other people. That's a very small-minded way of thinking. It's not what the text is saying. This is what the text is saying. Five unshakable convictions. Firstly, God works. Secondly, God works for good. Thirdly, God works for good in all things. And fourth, God works for good in all things for those who love him. As I said, this isn't God works good for those who love him and bad for those who don't. It simply means that when you love him, you see the good that he works for you. If you don't, if you don't respond to him, how can you see that good? But it is an assurance. And finally, fifth, for those who are called according to his purpose. There is, it's not exclusionary in this, but there is a sense of saying... For those who have responded to God's uh, blessing in Jesus Christ, we then are caught up in this life. We have a call and a purpose. It's almost too much to take. It's a way simply of saying that we matter and participate in this glory. I pause here to, um, to tell you what's in my mind when I think of this. Soren Kierkegaard, who's the father of existentialism, so studied in every university philosophy department, Kierkegaard was crazy and brilliant um, and a Christian. In perhaps his most famous work, Fear and Trembling, Fear and Trembling, he describes a person of Christian faith. Kierkegaard is one who emphasized that faith is always a leap of faith. It's always jumping into the unknown. But in, in Fear and Trembling, he describes a typical Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. But the description is very interesting. I could read you at length, but I won't. He basically says, you can't tell the difference between a guy and anybody else. He tends to his work. He has him as a bookkeeper, which is interesting. But he, he, he's very intricate in how he does this. He goes for a walk in the forest. He speaks to the grocer. But he takes delight in everything that he sees. He actually, it's writing this years ago, as he's walking down the street, he thinks of a meal that will be prepared for him when he gets home. But Kierkegaard says, and Kierkegaard goes to great lengths to say that if you just look at him, you can't tell the difference between him and everybody else. And then he says this, and he he prefaces it by saying, and this makes me furious. He just looks like everybody else, 
But about him, every moment, he is making the movements of infinity. Everything's different for this man. Because he lives his life in the Spirit. Do you see it? Do you see it? You say, I'm just gardening. Just gardening. But the whole thing lit up. I was caught up. I'm just watching my child's track meet. They're just running and then I'm crying. Not just because they came in eighth, which is the best they've ever done. But because there's something beautiful and eternal about what's going on. Or I just cry for the sorrow of this world, but in those tears I'm drawn into the heart of God and I'm shattered and put back together. Kierkegaard calls this man, and I like this, he calls him a knight of infinity. We keep going and pick up the pace. We're blasted up another step. There's no way to slow down. Verses 29 and 35, undeniable affirmations. Those whom he foreknew, the affirmation here is that you were known before you knew. You were known before you knew. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Don't kill this word with theological discussion. Did I, did I, you know, did I say yes to Jesus or did God choose me? Did I choose God or did God choose me? I, I love those discussions, but not, not in a way that kills the text. Because the word predestined here in, in our Christian life means this. It means that for me, looking back, I can say that God knew me and loved me before I had any idea. Predestined. But not only was this predestined, but we are also called a word again of purpose and meaning that says you have a place and you have a role. This can be the one that can make you cry at times. Not just that you were, that you were known before, not just that you were loved before, but that you matter in this world. You have a place. Fourthly, you were justified. You're granted Peace. And nothing in this world will offer you this. Justified. You spend so much of your time thinking you have to explain yourself to somebody else. You don't have to explain yourself to God. Because he has blessed you in Jesus Christ with justification. And then, and this one will send our, our minds exploding, we are glorified. We participate. Your little life you participate in God's glory. Another cannon blast to a higher step. Five unanswerable questions. I, what I want you to do, I mean, I, I, try, I do this in my life, I'm aware of this, is see that the energy with which you live comes from the awareness that these questions are unanswerable. So you see what I mean? Your life just keeps moving and going and going because if I ask a question, right? Like if God is for me, who can be against me? I mean, in one way I know the answer because it says no one can, but it's unanswerable. I keep living it. It doesn't produce frustration that I can't answer. Rather, it produces energy. My living is the response. 
So first, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can. Secondly, if God has given us Jesus Christ, how will he not give us graciously all things? In other words, God is not out to get you. You don't have to wonder what God thinks of you because he's given Jesus Christ for your life. He's not angry at you. This is not to uh, diminish the reality of sin in our lives, but God's relationship to you is described by one action, above all, the giving of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is for your good and is by nature the giver of gift. Thirdly, who will bring any charge against us? Many of you live your lives in fear of this question. You live on knife edge. Or as uh, in, in, in literature, there's... Uh, actually, this, this is in a new Mumford and Sons song as well that they borrow from other places. But the line that says, you have been weighed, you have been found wanting. That somebody looks at your career or your life or your achievements and goes, not impressive at all. Who will bring a charge against us? Who will accuse us? And then fourthly, who can condemn us? It's beautiful in the text, right? Who can condemn us? Not only that they could kind of, oh, you're not really that special at all, but, but that they could say, no, you're condemned. You, you haven't even measured up to any good standard. So who is it that can condemn us? And the answer in the text, simply one sentence, two words, no one. Why? Because the one who could does not, since Christ has not. And then we're told Christ himself, not only does he not condemn you, but he intercedes for you. And finally, what then will separate us from the love of God? And then the text blasts that open into a list of adversities and adversaries. Everything in your life that you fear is in this list. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword translate those to life in North Vancouver in 2015? You fear all of them. Not only will these things not separate us or alienate us from God, the text goes on, we are more than conquerors. Who? You? (laughs) With your broken down little life? Your failures? You and me. We are more than conquerors, and here is why. For I am convinced. You see how Paul has not diminished any of the suffering or death that's real in this world. For I am convinced. Now we're going to the top step, but you realize there's no top. I am convinced that neither death nor life neither present nor future. It's funny. Many of you fear the future. Present can be a terrible burden. You can fear the future as well or your own death and mortality. Not even those, neither height nor depth, the deepest abyss, nothing. No powers. Nothing will separate us. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now we get to the glory. Gospel and gospel and more gospel. 
In Him, now, when I see this, when I know this, in Him I live and move and have my being. I want to be a knight of infinity. I want people to think, it doesn't look any different than anybody else. Will you become a knight of infinity, living in this world, this life, but living in the light of the Holy Spirit? Will you turn to God in Jesus Christ, be awakened to this conversion? An old hymn. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. Our confidence is not in our love for him. That can be frail and fickle. At times we can experience it like a powerful reality, but it is frail and fickle. Our confidence is in his love for us, which is steadfast and faithful. And that love draws me to worship and to holiness. And so my eyes become eyes of faith. The mystery is unveiled and every bush becomes a burning bush. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush alive with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pick blackberries. We have been propelled up these steps. I want you to picture this now as we end. A young Christian goes to a desert father. I've said this before and I'll say it many times, I would think, in sermons. A young Christian, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, goes to a desert father, a wise, respected sage, someone called Abba, like a father. And he says, the young Christian says, I'm living this life praying and reading and even fasting. Nobody fasts, right? He's even fasting. Taking up the spiritual disciplines. What else should I do? And the Abba replies, oh, here's what the Abba replies. Why not become all flame?" Do you get it? Burn up for God. And when you know the truth of these words, that nothing separates us from the love of Jesus Christ, you can become all flame and still live this life each day. I invite you to that. Living this life, my love for you is so overpowering that I'm afraid that I will disappear but I will live in the life of the Holy Spirit because of the work of my Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, call us to this faith, we would ask. Give us eyes to see and help us to see that we can be transformed. Thank you that you don't diminish the truth of the pain in this world, but that you call us to participate in your glory. Let us see lives of wholeness and fullness in Jesus Christ. Amen.